Well, as you know, there has been no shortage of novels and movies and TV shows dedicated to the imagination, imagining what would happen, imagining the effects of time travel. And you'll notice that as many renditions of that story come up, they all have differing features and what that looks like. And yet, for some reason, they all agree on one thing, and that is that if we know too much about the future or if we accidentally share details about the future with someone in the past, we will, of course, disrupt the what? The space-time continuum, right? Well, what's interesting is when we come to our passage tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's going to become clear to us that God is not worried about us ruining the space-time continuum. In fact, human history plays out exactly as God intends for it to do. The other thing that we'll find out in our passage tonight is God does not want us to not know about the future. God very much desires that we know about the future. And God expects not only for us to know what is going to happen in the future, but he expects us to live differently today because of what we know about what is coming. And so for our theme in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to say it this way. Keeping the day of the Lord in mind will motivate Christians to live hope-filled, gospel-centered lives. Keeping the day of the Lord in mind will motivate Christians to live hope-filled, gospel-centered lives. You know that we've been studying 1 Thessalonians over the last couple semesters, and uh, the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy wrote about their personal experience with the church at Thessalonica, and and Paul wrote about how thankful he was for that church and how they have been growing and, and how well they've done. He wrote about how he wished he could visit them, but he was prevented, of course, and then he talked about the report that Timothy brought back from that church and how encouraged he was. Well, in chapters 4 and 5, we see in chapter 4, verse 1, finally then, brethren, and so Paul transitions there to, to explaining some things to the Thessalonians that they need to know, either questions that they had that they sent through Timothy or possibly just things that Paul desired to communicate to them. And so we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the vital importance of spiritual growth. Brandon walked through that passage with us about how no matter how well we are doing, we need to desire to excel still more. In verses 3 to 8 of chapter 4, Jonathan walked us through how we can pursue sexual purity in a perverse world, and and Paul reminded them of the importance of that. In verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4, Vikram walked us through how we can put our faith into action, and what does it mean that we actually live in loving one another. And then last time, Jonathan taught us through 4, 13 to 18, and we talked about a Christian's hope in death how our hope comes knowing that Jesus Christ will come and return for his church. And so that brings us to chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, which we'll study tonight and next week. So let's go ahead and read the passage together, and then we'll study it some more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. You'll see as we read through the passage that Paul is going to make three profound claims concerning the day of the Lord in this passage. And all of these claims come in the negative. There were, you probably saw them as we read through. There were three very important knots that we saw. First, in verses 1 to 3, we see that the unbelievers will not escape the day of the Lord. In verse 2, he says, you know full well that the day of the Lord will come. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, they will not escape. But in verses 4 to 7, we see that believers must not live unaware of the day of the Lord. Verse 4, you, brethren, are not in darkness. In verse 5, we are not of night nor of darkness. And then in verses 8 to 11, we saw the third important knot of our passage, and that is that God will not subject his people to the day of the Lord. Verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, that is how the passage break down, breaks down, but we're only going to cover verses 1 to 3 tonight, and you'll have to come back next week for the rest. So, the first of three profound claims that Paul makes here concerning the day of the Lord, verses 1 to 3, unbelievers will not escape the day of the Lord. In verse 1, Paul makes his first assertion here, and that is, it is important that we know about the day of the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now is a transition word, so we see that Paul is, is shifting topics slightly, although staying in the same genre, the same general ballpark. But he says, now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, the times and the epochs. Some scholars have tried to distinguish between these two words, and if they do that, they say that times uh, really refers to a specific period of time, the quantitative portion of time, and the epochs refers to a, a particular kind of time, the qualitative measure. So, for instance, I might say, hey, how have you been doing the last couple of months? And you think in a term, the, the matter of weeks and months. Or I could say, how have you been doing so far this semester? And I describe the kind of time that you've been enjoying the last couple of months. Or for another example, this is the year 2024. That's a very measurable way of saying the year. Or we could also say this is an election year. And that immediately communicates to your mind something different than just the number, right? And so we might say that the times and the epics has to do with when the day of the Lord might come and what it will look like. But I think actually more likely is that this these terms, the times and the epics, came to be kind of a catchphrase together. That is, that these words used together explain a certain topic that Paul is bringing up. Because in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, 
it says this, it is he, God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. And again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs. The idea is that God is the one who controls the big picture of human history. God controls the eras of human history. And so Paul brings it up. Are you wondering, are you curious about what's going to come next? What's the next big chapter of human history. Apparently, again, either the Thessalonians had direct questions about this, or Paul, as he talked to Timothy, understood that they needed encouragement in this area. But notice that he says, as to the times and the epics, what's going to be the next big event? Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So, so is Paul frustrated with them? Is he angry that they would ask this question? You don't need anything to be written to you about that. No, notice he uses the word brethren. It's a term of endearment. He loves this church. He's thankful for them. But is it bad to have questions about the timing of the end of the age? I don't think we can say that at all. Biblically, all through the Psalms, all through the prophets, even in Revelation chapter 6, when the martyrs cry out, and what do they cry out? How long, O Lord? Lord, will you tell us when? Having questions about timing and about the end of the age are normal things. In fact, our, our Lord's greatest, uh, largest section of teaching on the end of the age in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, was kicked off by exactly this question. When the disciples came and, and they said to him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It is normal and even good for us to want to know, Lord, when will the end of the age come? doesn't mean we get the answer as much as we want, but it's good for us to wonder and trust the Lord with that. But notice that Paul doesn't give them an answer, does he? He says, you're wondering about this, but you have no need of anything to be written to you. And so as, as we're sitting here wondering, we say, Paul, why would you say the Thessalonians don't need to be written to about this topic and then proceed to write 11 verses worth of content about this topic? Why write about something that doesn't need to be written about? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of good answers that, be, that could be stated here, but I came up with, with three. Number one, why would Paul write about something that didn't need to be written about? Well, it's to emphasize the topic. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 9, where it says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. When Vikram taught us through that passage, he made the point that this is a rhetorical device called a paralypsis. You say, I wish I didn't have to say this, and then you say it anyway to draw emphasis to that topic, to make it important for you to notice it. We see the same thing in, in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Paul uses that wording, that construction a lot in his letters. Uh, often says, we don't want you to be unaware. We don't want you to be uninformed. And the point is, this is something too important to miss. You cannot be unaware of these things. You can't be uninformed about this. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. It is something for you to be certain about. So Paul has no problem reminding the Thessalonians even of something that they should already know. But the second reason Paul would write about something that already didn't need to be written about is exactly to remind them that they already know the answer, to encourage the recipients. 
Apparently, the Thessalonians already knew these things. Look at verse 2. He says, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come. They already know this. And so he's reminding them of this. And just so you know, pastors love to do this in counseling. We're sitting across the desk from you. We're sitting across the living room from you. And we're talking about something going on in your life. And we say, I know that you know this, but, and then we say it again. Why? One, to remind you that that's the thing you need to be thinking about in this stage of your life. But also to remind you, to encourage you. This is the truth. You know the truth. You know the word of God. Do this. And so he encourages them as well. And you remember back in the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, look at this, just as you actually do walk. The Thessalonians not only knew the right answers, they were living in light of the right answers. Verse 10 you yourself, or verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you about the love of the brethren. Verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren. And we actually see this even at the end of our passage, chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Do you see Paul's heart in encouraging the Thessalonians? No, 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 you don't really need for me to write this to you. But let me tell you again, let me encourage you that you do know the right answer, that you are living well in response to that. You know, it made me think this week, what would happen if Paul were to write a letter to the Countryside Bible Church family? Would he write and would he say, you don't need me to write this again to you. You don't need anything to be written of you. You already know this. You're already living well. Or would Paul have to write to us and say, you know, the ancient version of, as per my last email, and then say it again? Or let's make it more personal. Individually, is the Holy Spirit pleased with you? Because when he illumines your mind to understand something from the Scripture, you latch onto that and you engage with that and you seek to obey as best you can, as fast as you can. Or do you grieve the Holy Spirit in your life by by forcing him to remind you of the same truth day after day after day after day and refusing to obey it. You see, it's good for us to know these things, to know the truth. It's good that if Paul were to write, he'd say, you know what, I don't even have anything else to say to you. You know the truth. You know the word of God. It's good for us to work hard at studying the scripture, at sitting under sound teaching, at being discipled in the truth. May we really truly know what we have been taught and may we live according to that. There's one more reason why I think Paul might write something that doesn't need to be written about. A few weeks ago I was reading through the Gospel of John in my Bible reading. So turn to John chapter 11. Notice this, thinking about our passage here in 1 Thessalonians. This was convicting to me. You remember John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. Jesus comes to the village. He interacts with Martha. Martha goes to get Mary. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. We talked about that last week, how we can have true grief, even with good theology. Verse 38, though. Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said, please don't do that. There will be a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? 41, they removed the stone. And look at what Jesus prays. 
Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. You want to know why Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 about something that the Thessalonians didn't need him to write about? Because the Holy Spirit in his wisdom knew that you need this and that I need this. Paul, by speaking to the Thessalonians, by God's grace, we, the the eavesdroppers, if you will, get to understand the truth of what is coming. We get to understand the truth of the day of the Lord, the coming judgment, the coming wrath on unbelievers and our coming salvation. We get to know that because Paul was kind enough through the Holy Spirit to write to the Thessalonians about it. I hope that you see, just in this short verse we've already covered, that it matters that we know about the Word of God. It's important that we know the truth. And it's important that we know the truth about the things coming in the future. You know, when you come to eschatology and Christians, you pretty much get one of two extremes, right? You get the one person that loves this, and they will argue with you on social media all day long. Or you get the rest of us, which we usually like to call ourselves panmillennialists, right? Tom's been teaching us about being a premillennial. Panmillennial is the one that says, I'm sure it'll all pan out in the end, right? (laughs) But we can't be either of those. We can't be the one who uses God's truth to be belligerent, and we can't be the ones that don't care, even if we pretend like we're trusting in the Lord because of that. We have to know the truth of the Scripture. We have to understand it. Eschatology matters. We talked about that last week in in chapter 4. Eschatology and what you think about the hope of the resurrection matters when your loved one dies. And as we're going to see tonight, understanding the day of the Lord and the coming judgment matters for how you live your life and how important the gospel is to you. So, it's important that we know about the day of the Lord. But the second thing that Paul is going to talk about here in our first section is not only is it important that we know about the day of the Lord, but it's important what we know about the day of the Lord. And so, in verse 2, we're going to talk about first the definition of the day of the Lord. The definition of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. He continues to encourage them. You yourselves know this. It's something that you've known before that still has effect now. And you know full well. You know this with precision, with accuracy, carefully. What do they know? Well, they know that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So the question is, what is a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Well, there's only a handful of usages of this kind of language in the New Testament. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He calls it the day of our Lord Jesus or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And from those, we really, uh, the main thing we, we draw out of that is that this has to do with something at the end of the age, a period of time at the end of the age. Acts chapter 2, verse 20 quotes an Old Testament text. And so there's really three primary texts in the New Testament that deal with this idea of the day of the Lord. Our text in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and 2 Peter chapter 3. Now we'll come back to those as we get to them. 
But really, the day of the Lord terminology, that phrasing, really is an Old Testament idea. It's used at least 19 times in eight different Old Testament books. And so we see in passages like Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 11, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Or verse 9 of Isaiah 13, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Verse 11, Thus I will punish the Lord, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. In context, he's talking about the judgment God will bring on the nation of Babylon. In Ezekiel chapter 13, he uses the same phraseology of the day of the Lord to talk about Babylon judging Judah, conquering Judah. In Ezekiel 30 verse 3, it talks about the day of the Lord being when Babylon conquers Egypt. The whole book of Joel really talks about the day of the Lord. Joel 1 verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2 Verses 1 and following, the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. Joel 2, verses 10 and 11, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, or Joel 2, 30 and 31 Uh, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In Amos chapter 5, it talks about the fall of Israel with this idea of the day of the Lord. In Obadiah chapter 15, it uses the day of the Lord terminology to talk about the judgment of the nation of Edom. And then in Zephaniah uh, chapter 1 verse 7, It says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. In verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Malachi 4 calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. As we see this, in the Old Testament, clearly the day of the Lord is to indicate a unique period of God's judgment on a certain people group or nation. We saw that against Babylon, against Judah, against Israel, against Edom, and all these others. And so in one sense, we could say a day of the Lord seems to be that period of judgment. And yet, we have the idea that the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. It's coming later. And so we might say these, these temporal days of the Lord, if you will, are these, these near fulfillments of that judgment are on those nations, but there still is another coming fulfillment. Or as the Zondervan commentary says, divine judgment in this age is a foreshadowing of the horrific final day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is still to come. How do we know that? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 2, Paul encourages the Thessalonians not to, not to be disturbed by the idea that the day of the Lord passed them by. The implication is, you're not going to miss it, right? You will know when the day of the Lord comes. Joel chapter 2, verse 2, we read it a minute ago, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. You're not going to miss the day of the Lord and be like, oh, was that that thing that happened last Thursday? No. 
The day of the Lord is coming. What is it? What are the signs that it comes? What will happen when it does come? We'll compare some of these Old Testament references to the day of the Lord to what Tom has taught us in the book of Revelation. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10 The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. Or Joel 2.10, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. But then we go to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. And listen, the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Or Revelation chapter 8, talking about the trumpet judgments. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck that they were darkened. Revelation chapter 16, the bowl judgments. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. You see, this language of the day of the Lord, this this judgment that God will bring was fulfilled temporally in these, these Old Testament nations as God brought them under judgment. But ultimately, the day of the Lord comes in the future, the seven-year tribulation period where God uniquely pours out his wrath on the earth and its inhabitants. The day of the Lord will come. But notice in verse 2, the rest of our definition here, not only is the day of the Lord a unique period of God's judgment and wrath coming at the end of the age, but we won't know when it's coming. See, in verse 2, it comes, it will come just like a thief in the night. We see the same language used in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. But Revelation 3.3 says, Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. What's the idea of coming like a thief in the night? You don't know when it's coming. Jesus says this in Matthew 24 and 25 in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 36. Of of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Even Jesus in his humanity, in his human nature, did not know the day or hour, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 44. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Matthew 25, 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. But it's very interesting. Look at verse 2. You yourselves know full well. You know precisely that we can't know precisely. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Let's move on now. Not just the definition of the day of the Lord, but the details of the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So what will the day of the Lord be like? Well, we saw throughout the the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 18, what it will actually look like. But notice here, verse 3, the first detail we learn is that it will be surprising. It will be surprising while they are saying. 
And the question is, who are they? Well, they is contrasted, notice verse 1, against brethren, you, and again in verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. Who is Paul referring to with the they? Well, it's everyone who is not the brethren. Therefore, this is, by implication, unbelievers. Now, I wasn't planning on going here, but here we go. I believe there is a strong case to be made from the end of chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, for a pre-tribulational rapture. I also believe that there is a stronger argument to be made for a pre-tribulational rapture from this passage, 5 verses 1 to 11, because notice how careful Paul is with his language. Because in verse 1 and 2, he talks about you yourselves know, you brethren, verse 4, are not in darkness. But when he talks about verse 3, the one who will endure the day of the Lord, it says while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. Look down at Verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath. We saw that in chapter 1 as well. You see, when the day of the Lord comes, when this period of tribulation comes, it will come on them, on the unbelievers, the ones who are saying peace and safety, the ones who will be surprised by the coming. Notice he says, they are saying peace and, and safety. What is that? The, peace, a state of harmony, you know, uh, we're all friends, everything's okay, safety, something is secure. Well, it's possible that peace and safety was a slogan of the Roman government, and so Paul might be, be kind of taking a backhanded lick at the Roman government saying, oh, we will take care of you, Rome is good because Rome is at peace. It's possible that he's referring there, but I think it's more likely that Paul is referring back to the Old Testament. In several Old Testament passages, God condemns the people of Israel or or condemns the false teachers for saying that there is peace when there is not. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 8 to 10, therefore, Thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. Look at verse 10, Ezekiel thirteen ten. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. You see, when the day of the Lord comes, when God's judgment comes on this earth, the unbelieving world will think it's just another Friday or whatever day it is, okay? They will be living their lives in ignorant bliss and the judgment will come. Luke chapter 17 Verses 26 and following. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. 
They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. You understand that at some point, the rapture will happen Jesus Christ will catch up his church to himself and will plunge the world into into a brutal manifestation of God's wrath for the next seven years. All the while they're saying peace and safety. The New American Commentary comments, the clause peace and safety, people are saying this, is not a prediction of a particular time in human history so much as a prediction of an attitude. These words describe arrogant and self-deceived people. The world does not care to know what God says about their lives. And therefore, the world does not care to know what God says about their futures. But it will still happen. And when the day comes, it will surprise them because they're standing there saying, the world is great, everything is fine, peace and safety. And God says, there is no peace. The day of the Lord will come. Application for you and I. Recognize here that the scripture is clear. The coming of the Lord and the judgment, it will be a surprise. We cannot know the day or hour. Jesus said that multiple times. Reject those who claim that they know the day or hour. Either those, you know, the, uh, what was the book, Tom? The 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. Remarkably, that 88, you know, errors in one book, right? (laughs) Reject those who claim that Jesus is coming back at a certain day and time right now, but also reject the, the understanding that Jesus can't come back right now. It'll be a long time in the future. We've got things to do first. Recognize that the day or hour we do not know, which means what? It means we don't know. It could be right now. One of these days that's going to work and it's going to be great. I'm O for like four, by the way. (laughs) Another application. They're standing there saying peace and safety. Even as Christians, it is tempting to look for peace and safety in the circumstances of the world. Either personal circumstances, how, how our finances are, how our family is, or the circumstances of the world, who gets elected or doesn't. But we can't. We can't look for peace and safety in this life. Why? Because there is not peace. There is judgment coming on an unbelieving world. There is peace alone in Jesus Christ. That's where our peace is. Are we tempted to live for the peace and safety of this life and not consider the eternal matters at stake? We must not. Paul tells us the day of the Lord, when it comes, it will be surprising. Secondly, when the day of the Lord comes, it will be sudden. It will be sudden. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly. 
Destruction will come upon them suddenly. Destruction is the idea of, of utter ruin. You remember when we studied through the, the judgments in Revelation, uh, the, the devastation that God brings on the world, uh, the, uh, the death of, of billions of people over a short period of time. Destruction will come. It says destruction will come upon them suddenly. And this idea of coming upon them, it's a a word that means to come near to someone, but it's almost always used in a context where the coming is is either very sudden or it comes with some level of intensity or violence. It's used in Acts chapter 17 verse 5 when it says that, that the mob came and they were attacking the house of Jason. Attacking. It came upon the house of Jason. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34, it says, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. When it comes to the end of the age, when, when the day of the Lord comes, when God brings his judgment on this earth, it will come surprisingly, but it will come suddenly. It will come upon them. It's interesting, you can't see it as well in English, but in the Greek, even the word order and the tenses Paul uses here, it's all jumbled up. He's writing with urgency. He's saying, it's going to come, it's going to come suddenly. He literally says, suddenly upon them will come the destruction. You recognize that when the judgment comes, there's no countdown clock. Uh, There's no five-minute warning from your mom before it's bedtime. The judgment will come, and it will come suddenly on an unexpecting world. Notice the illustration he uses here in in verse 3. It will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. Now, obviously, he connects it here to the suddenly, and so we get the idea of, of labor pains indicating sudden onset. You ladies that have had children, you, most of you know that you went from not having a baby to having a baby really quickly, right? That's why you have to get to the hospital or to the midwife. The labor pains come upon them suddenly. But notice that, that this idea of labor pains has been used in this, this context of the day of the Lord before and in other passages indicating increasing intensity. You remember uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It says the same thing in Mark 13, verse 8. The idea is that, that when the judgment comes, you will think that it is intense, but it's only the beginning, and it will only get worse as it goes on. And we've talked in, in Revelation about the end of that tribulation period, the last three and a half years, the great tribulation. Not only does labor pains here indicate sudden onset, and not only does it indicate the increasing intensity of those birth pains, but also we see in Isaiah chapter 13 that this idea of labor pains comes with with the idea of intense pain. Isaiah 13 talks about the day of the Lord, verse 6, "'Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty.'" Verse 7, therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Verse 8, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. You see, the world, even those who have been around Christianity enough to know that there's a judgment day coming, like to say things like, it'll probably be all right. Uh, I can deal with it. I'll withstand the judgment. No, you won't. The judgment comes suddenly, and it comes with intense pain. 
God's judgment is not a tickle. God's wrath comes on the world, and the world will be writhing in pain like a woman in active labor. The day of the Lord will come surprisingly, and it will come suddenly. The New American Commentary said this, But for the Christian, as for the non-Christian, the beginning of that day will lead unavoidably to its conclusion. There will be no delay, no opportunity to take care of neglected business. There will be no second chance, no opportunity for additional preparation before meeting the Lord. We talked about that even this morning in Revelation, but recognize that when you leave this life, there's no more chances. This is it. You're either in Christ and will enjoy the blessing of that, or you are not, and you will stand before the Lord on Judgment Day. There is no delay. It comes upon them suddenly. Recognize that that whenever the judgment comes, it will come, and you won't have time to figure it out then. Then won't be the time to share the gospel with your neighbor. Then won't be the time to send the missionary overseas. There won't be any more time. We recognize that God is in perfect sovereign control over human history, but we don't know what that is. We are in a race against time to proclaim the gospel to the world. They need it, or the destruction of the day of the Lord will come upon them suddenly. We don't have unlimited time. So let me ask you, honestly, are you faithfully, fervently praying for the salvation of the people in your life who do not know the Lord? Are you looking for every opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel into their lives? Are you praying that our church would raise up young people to go to the nations, to take the gospel where where the Lord's name hasn't been named? Are you looking for opportunities for your kids and grandkids to get that kind of training so that they might go? Do you recognize that the day of the Lord, when it comes, it comes suddenly. We have an urgency to proclaiming the gospel. Because once the judgment comes, not only will it be surprising and sudden, but it will be sure. It will be sure. Verse 3 ends, and they will not escape. In English, you're not allowed to do a double negative. You're allowed to do that in Greek. They will surely not escape. It's used of a literal escape in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul writes that remember that he was being persecuted and so he was let down in a basket over the city wall and it says that he escaped the ruler of Damascus that way. But Paul writes here in 1 Thessalonians 5, That when it comes to the day of judgment, when it comes to the day of the Lord, the day of wrath on this earth, they will not escape. There will be no baskets over the wall for the unbelieving world when the day of the Lord comes. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, no more can the world escape the coming wrath of God when it breaks out on the day of the Lord than a pregnant woman can escape her labor pains. Once it comes, it comes, and there is no turning back. The day of the Lord will be sure. Amos, chapter 5, one of the Old Testament day of the Lord passages, verses 18 to 20, says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? 
It will be darkness and not light. What do we say to the unbelievers who say, man, I just wish this would be over? Say, no, you don't wish it would be over. It will be darkness and not light to you. Verse 19, as when a man flees from a lion and meets a bear, or he goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Zephaniah 1, verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord. Are you here not being one who has entrusted your life to Jesus Christ and you are relying on your status in this life to save you in the day of judgment? It will not. Their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. When the day of the Lord comes, it will be sure. They will not escape. We've seen that unbelievers will not escape the day of the Lord. It's important that we consider these things. It's important that we know about the day of the Lord. And it's also important what we know about the day of the Lord. When it comes, it will be surprising. While they're saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly. And they will not escape. If you're here tonight and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, and I don't mean you, you've heard the stories and you think that might be true. If you are not someone who has renounced your sinful life and put your whole hope of getting into heaven, of being right before God on Jesus Christ and his death alone, you will not escape. There is no other way to say it. That is the truth. When it comes to judgment day, you will not escape the wrath of God. Recognize that, that God is a holy and a righteous God, and he must punish our sin and our rebellion. And just so you know, you are a sinful person, a rebellious person against God's law. Jesus Christ was not. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death as a substitute for his people. And if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to be the one who doesn't escape. You can be the one in verse 9 that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me back to Joel chapter 2. We'll wrap up our time. Joel chapter 2 is one of the clearest passages in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord. I want you to notice the emphasis that Joel has here, even as he pronounces this impending destruction, this impending wrath of God. Joel chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? The implication is no one. No one can stand before the wrath of God. And yet look at verse 12. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of evil. Even in the pronouncement of God's coming wrath on an unbelieving world, the prophet reminds us it's not too late yet. Come, return to God with your heart, with weeping and mourning over your sins. Tear open your heart before God and tell him you have nothing to offer and beg his forgiveness and beg for mercy. Why? Because God is capricious and he's going to punish you anyway? No. Because our God is one who is abounding in loving kindness for us. Exodus 34, 7 tells us that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But if you are one of his people, if you are one who has truly repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not destined us for wrath. The day of the Lord matters. The way that you think about the end matters. Because keeping in mind that coming judgment reminds us to live gospel-centered lives. We needed the gospel if we're in Christ. And the rest of the world does too. Because when the judgment day comes, it will come suddenly and surely. And they will not escape. But they can through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the time. We thank you for your word. God, I pray for those of us in here who are, are in Christ, who, who we have been saved by your grace. God, I pray that this would be motivating for us, that we would be reminded that the only thing standing between this world and your coming wrath is your perfect son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on the cross. And I pray that it would be our delight, our duty and delight to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone we meet, that we would take it not only to to our kids and grandkids and, and our neighbors, but we would take it across the street and across the world, that we would tell everyone that there is a way to avoid the coming judgment, that there is a way to be saved from the wrath of God, and that way is Jesus Christ our Lord. God, I pray for anyone here under the sound of my voice that has not repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, that right now would be their moment of salvation, that you would use the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts, to regenerate them and make them a new creature, that they would go from being a son of darkness to being a son of light, from being one waiting on a sudden destruction to being one who is not destined for wrath. pray that you would do that even tonight. Amen.